Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powadic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I am Adam Powadic, one of the hosts. The other host, Aaron Cameron, is sitting with me here. Uh, the podcast is brought to you by First National. Our guest today is Sandy Schindelman, the president of Shindico Group, based out of Winnipeg. Welcome to the show, Sandy. Thank you very much for having me. So Sandy's actually in town, Toronto, recording in Toronto, but uh, Sandy's a, a born and raised yeah, Manitobian. Is that the the Manitoban? Yeah, yeah, Manitoban. Okay, uh, he's actually here for the for the CCIM CCIM conference. Uh, both Sandy and I are members of CCIM, and the big global conference is going on this week, or I guess just wrapping up today. Wrapping really. up today. Yeah. So we we both. Uh, we're, what does we're CCIM here. stand for? In the old days, Certified Commercial Investment Member, and it was an offshoot of the NAR, the National Association of Realtors. Of course, for many years, we've been our own institute, and it emanated out of the California Association of Exchangers, and those were the premier real estate brokers that dealt with 1031 tax-exempt exchanges in the United States. So that's where it started from in the 60s. Something that we, we don't have here in Canada. For we anybody, yeah, we should. Uh, for anybody not familiar with it, it allows you to you know move between assets without inc- incurring major uh, taxes along the way. So it puts a lot more freedom into the market and allows people to make better choices about uh, where they want to uh, pursue yield. Yeah, it's something that I thought we were close to having about a decade ago, and it doesn't look like tax relief is likely on the Sorry, okay, agenda so today. back up. Explain that to me. What is the, what is the tax exemption when, you're, when 10, you're trading assets? It's 1031 exchange. So you can move your basis to a new asset. So you can sell without incurring uh, a recapture or a gain, provided you move into a like asset. Okay. Meaning a similar retail asset or yeah, an office real asset? Estate, real, real estate, estate asset. asset. Okay. Yeah, just dollar value, I guess, would right. be uh, what yeah. you're trying to match oh, okay. up. Or, and it really yeah. makes the U.S. investment business and allows people to act as private individuals, as pension funds in Canada do, where they can trade without having a concern for a tax. On the uh, sale? Yes. Okay. You realize, again, you can make a massive gain. And as long as you buy another asset you're moving in without the tax. Okay, interesting. Identify another asset. Sorry to take us off track there. Why don't we, why don't we back up? So Sandy, Sandy, tell us about yourself. How did you get into real estate in the first place? I got into real estate growing up in Portage La Prairie, which is about an hour west of Winnipeg. I was always interested in it. It seemed like a very easy way of making a living. Uh, you didn't have to lift any bales of hay. And you didn't have to scrape any manure off yourself if you handled yourself. Is that your, is that your family background? They were, they were yeah. farmers? Farmers and grocery corner grocery store in, in the small town. Wow. Did they own the real estate the grocery store was in? Yes, they did. Okay. So you had some exposure to it. It's kind of the, the general concept at a young age. Yes. And then how, at what point did, uh, I guess you headed to Winnipeg to start uh, start the career? Or how did that, what was the transition like? The transition to Winnipeg was I went there to attend the University of Manitoba. And so it was an easy transition. I was always interested in it. And real estate was something that, you know, you could get licensed and you could practice and you could practice part-time even and spent a lot of time studying the assets and spent a lot of late nights driving around and seeing what was going on. You know, that's interesting when you talk to, you know, real estate professionals and typically it's the successful ones. 
they'll always have stories about just driving around and almost getting in accidents, just looking at things and looking up and trying to see what's going on. There's a real passion. You get that sense. So clearly you had this passion from a very young age. Yeah, you know, I would drive around, count parking stalls, see who, who's busy, who's not, go inside, see what inventory levels they had. Not that I was an expert in all topics, but is it easy to get in? Is it easy to get out? Can you turn left? Can you turn right? And what was doing with the marketplace? You know, driving around, looking at the cars in the driveway, looking at the yard trash, bicycles, <laughs> whatever, to try and see where there might be an upward trend. So, so you went to university. How did you get into to was it property management at first, or was it was it acquisition dispositions? What were you doing to, to start to start the career? To start with, it was uh, brokerage. But starting in brokerage in Winnipeg, where I was not from, was a little difficulty uh, when you when you have your own company. You're not picking up clients from somebody else, and so that led me to doing more acquisitions and partnerships. That was an easier way to establish myself in the market. Do you remember, or what, do you have a story around the first, the first purchase? Well, one of the first purchases I, I did uh, was a shopping center that had a closed grocery store. The grocery store chain, it didn't go bankrupt, but they closed their stores, their food stores. And it was a co-op on the east side of uh, Winnipeg. And we went into partnership with somebody who was uh, also actively bidding on it. And the broker put us together to be partners. And while I was on the dentist chair with a dam in my mouth, my dentist, who became, may he rest in peace, we just lost him a couple of months ago, our prime investor and partner, he was drilling and hitting me and saying, you know, that some awful people came into his neighborhood and bought the co-op shopping center right out from underneath his nose. And he would have bought it and he would have paid more. He didn't know what they paid for it, etc. I couldn't really respond with the dam in my mouth <laughs> until I, until I was sure I didn't have a backup appointment. And then I, on the way out, I said it was me. And he said, well, you know, he'd like to be invested in those kinds of things. And he had a lot of real estate, you know, I think on Dixie road in Toronto and everywhere else. Mm. He was a prolific investor over the years. And we did some joint ventures with him. Oh, that's interesting. What a small world. Let's let's work backwards, I think, for some context. Sandy, why don't you talk about where you are today and what your company does and, and you know, just, just the general overview of, of, of the company. Certainly. Uh, Shinnico's been around for a long time in different uh, main business uh, pursuits, but we've been 42 years in business now. Started off feeding cattle, feedlot type operation. We had an arcade and pool hall that my real estate office was in, in the back. <laughs> and it was apparent to me that I needed a real estate education that I wasn't going to get in the smaller community. And that's when I pursued vigorously the CCIM designation and education. Took it just before it came to Canada, then kind of got involved with the first Canadianization of the classes, et cetera. And I think that was very good for us and our organization. Uh, through the years, we've specialized always in various aspects and product types, industrial, office. And we saw probably about 1982, an opportunity in retail. Rents hadn't moved in a generation. Development was non-existent. The style of the existing assets were not modern, let's say, in terms of parking ratios, etc. 
And notwithstanding it had the least amount of glamour, it also had the least amount of competition. Hmm. So we decided that we would specialize in the retail. And we have various divisions that work independently, a tenant mandate business that we're very proud of, development services for both ourselves and some great Canadian pension funds. And we've been able to deliver some jumbo yields, we're happy to say. And brag about it, and so you should. Yes, and, um, you know, with relatively low volatility. So so how many um, square feet of retail do, do you own today? Uh, we own ourselves about uh, 3 million feet. And that's not, that's not the only asset class, though. Uh, we have apartments. We have some uh, industrial and some office. And for just a point of and reference so, so in terms storage. of uh, scale of the operation, we... Uh, there was an article referenced a while ago that claimed that uh, Sandy paid two percent of the property tax in Winnipeg, but he told us that was a bit of a bit of a stretch. It was more like one point six. Is that uh, right? Yeah, probably uh, a decade or so ago. I think with the assets we developed in Winnipeg, we were at about one point six percent with property and business tax. A just, portion just, of that. Just point. to clarify, that's out of all the taxes earned by the city of Winnipeg, you were you contributed about one point six percent of that total. Right now, this goes back, as I said, plus yeah, a, decade a decade ago. Uh, so that'd be property and business taxes. Business taxes usually paid directly by our tenants. So Winnipeg's your your home and where you're from generally, but you're not you're not strictly a, a Winnipeg investor. No, we have uh, made investments to get best practices here in Toronto in the multi-res field. We have developed as well with our partners in other places in um, Ontario, a large development, uh, office development in Regina, again with partners uh, through CCIM, as a matter of fact, some great assets in uh, Tucson, and uh, work as well with my brother in Europe, where we have a small office with him, or use his small office, I'd say, sourcing uh, investments and development opportunities. What's your What's your favorite market right now out of uh, the ones that you're in? Well, I think Toronto's the most exciting market, one of the most exciting in the world, I'd say. Are you trying to flatter us, or is that uh, your general opinion? <laughs> no, I, no I, I thought you guys were from some other place. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't ignore what's going on here. And it's not readily, using central place theory, something that you can take and do someplace else. We like our market for us. Winnipeg is, uh, you know, the pendulum swings for and against the business right now. Uh, civically, they're not as pro-business as they have been. So that solidifies the value of existing assets and uh, makes it a little more difficult to build new, unfortunately. But we continue to press on and we do have a pipeline of about 6 million feet. So that's one of the largest pipelines mm-hmm. we've ever had. And that, that's yeah, not well, just retail, that, that's across all asset class? Yes, but that's a grade level. So that would include uh, places for hotels, office, and uh, retail. And that's just in Winnipeg or that's that's everywhere? That is Manitoba. Okay, wow. What's um, the mission statement? Uh, our oh. mission statement has evolved. I think it's only evolved once. It used to be... I don't know what it was. It was a paragraph that I believe we took from someplace else and changed some of the words and plagiarized it and wrote it out and typed it out and put it someplace. I don't know that anyone saw it, but I was happy to know that we had a mission statement. And that evolved about uh, 
15 years ago to the mission statement that we have now, which is very short, uh, very understandable for all the people that we work with, all my colleagues, and that is succeeding by helping others succeed. When I went to the printer, he offered some great advice. Why don't you take out the word succeeding and just say helping others succeed? It'll fit better. It'll balance the card better. The letterhead will look better. We can make it a little bigger. And I'm glad that I didn't take that advice uh, because at the end of the day, we're a for-profit private company. Uh, we're not the government. And we need everyone to understand that succeeding is okay. And so it appeared to me when we created this that I had a business with about 10 employees who didn't have my last name. And of the 10 employees, I had about four divisions. I had the property management division. I had the accounting division. I had the brokerage division. And I had uh, the reporting and development division. And we found people sitting in a room not much larger than the one we're in right now, uh, sending people emails, not being able to get their work done because accounting was waiting for property management and property management was waiting for accounting to send something. And I thought, you know, how can this happen? You know, we can touch each other. So it became apparent that people being owned by divisions was not how we needed to go. We needed to get everyone on the same page. And when we finally got property management to understand that they succeeded when asset management succeeded. If all they did was worry about asset management succeeding, they're succeeding as property managers. Accounting, if all you're concerned about is the leasing team or uh, the property management team succeeding, and that by that you're probably getting them the information they need, but you're also looking at the properties on your way home. You're also giving feedback of neighboring properties or properties where there might be opportunities of tenants moving in or tenants moving out. If all we're worried about is seeing that the other people succeed and they're doing the same thing, obviously it was a, a great breakthrough for us. And it really became apparent when we developed our new space and we developed it around my idea of pods, an asset manager, a property manager, an assistant property manager, and a clerical person. And uh, we found that everybody pushed things down to the new kid on the block. Receivables went through the roof once I did this great improvement. Time to get leases signed, I think, quintupled the time. And so I said, well, we have to retool. Notwithstanding, I designed a building around that method. We had to, we had to make the change. And the change that we that we finally got people to understand was I started to follow what was going on. And I'll give you an example. In the fall time of the year, somebody would call our switchboard and ask if they might put up a sign for their children's gymnastics club. And the reception person would give it to the clerk on the team who would give it to the assistant property manager who would wait for the uh, property manager to come back and hope to catch the attention of the asset manager or owner, uh, in which case we're, we, a lot of it was us. We were the biggest customer of our, of our asset management. And it seemed like a lot of effort. And so when we finally got to the point of understanding the first contact, if you're succeeding by helping the gymnastics club succeed, now the word succeeding, we have to not 
eliminate. You can't put up your sign in front of our leasing sign. <laughs> you know, don't put it on our asphalt unless you're putting plywood underneath it. Uh, don't block a tenant or take up too many parking spaces. But if, if you as the reception person at our office can help them succeed, you're succeeding. And we don't need to talk to the assistant and the deputy assistant and the third vice president <laughs> and everybody else, you know, especially in a firm that was as small as it was at that time. We're now close to 40 people. And I think that that helped with our growth and helps make the organization way easier to manage. It runs less like a government bureaucracy. Is that uh, the right, goal? Right, right. Um, you mentioned both asset management and property management. Um, how do the two divisions interact in your company, and how do you treat the two of them? Well, we train all of our property managers as asset managers. And we find that that's not uh, typical of uh, our market or our region. We will be going to the place where we won't have any property managers. We'll only have asset managers. And with the title asset manager and all of us wanting to live up to the jobs and the roles that we have, it, uh, it's more incumbent on a holistic approach of where the, your asset sits in the marketplace and how it relates to your investors and your investors' requirements. Uh, so asset manager, dealing with construction, dealing with updating our, our facilities, we think it's more important. One of the things as asset managers we have everybody uh, geocoded and coded by NAICS code, the North America Industrial Classification Codes. And so when we see something happening in the marketplace, Office Depot leaving or coming or whatever, uh, we look at that code and we look at what assets we have in that code. What is the percentage of GLA? What is the percentage of revenue? What is the weighted average lease term? And that's important. So all the analysts that are analyzing real estate for the banks or companies like First National, anybody who files a report, we look at those reports and we want to make sure that we have at a minimum that type of information. And we want property managers to understand all of those things. So when I read something uh, today, I got something from the Royal Bank. They were analyzing something and I, you know, immediately forwarded it off to the team to say, you know, are we doing this? Can this be automated? And this is something that we should be looking at. So report like a public company and be thankful that we're not one. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely force your property managers to step up their game in terms of just their focus on the business aspect of. Absolutely. And, and yield aspect of real well, estate. We always found that in our market and maybe in other markets, there were two kinds of management organizations those that were good at getting the business and those that were good at doing it. And we've always proudly been uh, the latter and need to, and need to focus on that. Well, and it, you can tie the two together. The property manager is succeeding by helping the asset manager succeed. Exactly. In this case, we're making them all one and the same. Right. Interesting. So Sandy, you know, you, you own a ton of retail. Obviously that's an asset class that's, that's facing some headwinds right now. So we are talking about, you know, you're you know, helping your asset managers and your property managers and, you know, the emphasis on success. So, so clearly with the exposure to retail with Target and now Sears and the Toys R Us issues and, you know, Amazon coming into the marketplace, you know, how is your company approaching what's going to transpire over the next five, 10, 15 years as it relates to, to retail? Well, we built with pension fund partner, 150,000 foot target that operated for three months mm. 
on stilts. So it's all second floor space. Yeah. We haven't got it all figured out yet. And with uh, the tax consequences in, in Winnipeg with a high tax bite, we're pushing a new Mercedes off the roof every month. Partners. <laughs> and a nice one, you know, yeah, yeah. an AMG. Not the, not the, not the low-end $40,000 one. <laughs> no, yeah. no, the, the expensive, you know, the $150,000 ones. Were you one of the lucky or unlucky landlords that had the indemnity and got some sort of payback from Target. We didn't have a U.S. guarantee. We okay. did. We actually did get a check as part of the uh, receivership yesterday, and I think there's going to be one more coming. But where we've been most affected by Target is in Greenfield Development across from malls where they were in mm. and where they had some dollar ten a square foot Zeller's leases. And it's pretty hard to compete with Greenfield across the street. So we've had to wait for that to get absorbed. Uh, one of the developments, probably good timing, we are working with Canadian Tire and uh, a few other people to do a, a Greenfield infill development when, you know, a block away, uh, a Target closed that had just been renovated and uh, very motivated mall owners, etc. And that's where they went. Well, that's leaving us the opportunity to put some true density on the site because all of our sites have very low density. We have lots of 15 and 16% site coverage assets, wow. lots of infill assets. And so this is where we're gaining expertise and looking for best practices to add multi-res to the, to the properties, office to the properties. Uh, we already have high walkability scores in a place like Winnipeg. Uh, we're not downtown. We've got some 79s and 80s. And once we're finished our development, we think we'll get up to about 87. And that, you know, is something to be very proud of in a suburban location. So we're making our own walkability. The headwinds from Sears uh, are going to be, in many respects, greater. And most of the places we're in, their, their real estate was better than the Zeller's real estate. Are you comfortable saying how many Sears you, you have? I have none. Oh, okay. Uh, I have them as neighbors, though. Okay. So, uh, but we'll be competing with them. Sure. It's in the, some of the same places we competed talk with. Talking about, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Are you, are you know that maybe that I'm curious, but that that target on stilts because there's there's one here in Toronto that that's in a similar situation at the Brickyard. It's called the Brickyard. Stockyard. Stockyard. Stockyard yeah. Thank you. Sorry, the Stockyard in Liberty Village. And I, you know, um, are you demising that space? Like, what's what is the approach that you're that you're looking to do? Well. Target didn't build a building as robust as we would have. Mm. So they were in charge of that. And we would have had at least to a single tenant had we had better floor load situation. And so right now we're working on a demising uh, to put it into three spaces, the largest of which uh, will be an office use, okay. kind of a millennial hipper okay. office accommodation. And a lot of people will like the covered parking in Winnipeg. <laughs> yeah, and adjacent sure. to the Polo Park Shopping Center. Okay, the sure. Prime Mall. Okay, so demising the space is typically the approach. I mean, I think everybody's dream is to just find a grocery store to fill that space. But it's I think I've only heard of one or two situations where that's actually worked out. It's a lot easier to demise a space on grade, let me tell you. Then, yeah, than one that's... The uh, vertical, yeah, with the vertical uh, transportation... And the fire separation from underneath. Oh, I'm sure. Well, I think just the elevators, that you'd probably have to add some, I would suspect. We, we right? are adding elevators, yes. Hmm. Escalators. It's a challenge. I've, you learn something, I'm sure, though. 
Yes. What did you learn? The customer isn't always right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. And there's no, nothing, uh, there, there is no bulletproof tenant. No, there isn't. So you need diversification, certainly. So let's keep going down this this conversation, uh, Sandy. So talk about you know again. So we've had some some um, some larger tenants, you know, going filing for bankruptcy. And then of course the Amazon, uh, you know, we've kind of we're, we're talking internally here at First National, and and really, you know, when we see retail assets that come in for financing that have you know a lot of clothing stores and things like that or shoe stores we're really really hesitant right that 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 if it's grocery anchored i think you kind of go okay great that makes sense people are always going to want to go to a grocery store to buy their groceries but basically anything else we're really you know really concerned about it the shoes i'm wearing at this moment were delivered via amazon yesterday <laughs> i did not go to a mall to buy them so it you know yeah, that's uh, yeah. definitely a, a subsector of the retail asset class being hammered it is i think that by the time it becomes the majority of purchases I'm going to guess the three of us in this room are unlikely to be still doing this. Sure. Okay. So in terms of underwriting, you guys are going to have to uh, work a little harder for your phony baloney jobs here (laughs) Uh, because you're going to have to look at the density. You're going to have to look at additional use. You're going to have to look at a, a cost to replace and all of those, you know, things. Is it an infill? What can happen? And the sponsorship is going to, Become more always, and more important. important. Yep. We still don't give recourse, so don't even look at me like that. <laughs> the um, you know we've remade. You know, uh, Eaton's went away, Simpsons went away, Woodward's went away, Clark's went away, Gamble's went away, Tops went away, Sandstore. Uh, you know, you name it. We've had a lot of people buy away and Bargain Heralds and Kmart and Wilco and well, Wilco changed. We'll always be reinventing ourselves. Mm-hmm. We, you can't rest on your laurels. It shows the need for diversification and, and uh, to some aspects, uh, mixed use. I think the mixed use will get overdone. You know, I, you know, once people uh, start, you know, not everyone can live in a three or 400 square foot apartment their whole life. Sure. Or they won't be able to buy another pair of shoes like Adam did. <laughs> are you are you looking to transition some of your your um, your assets to be more? You know, I don't know if this is the right term, but sort of like a destination destination shopping experience. Like I know that's kind of where everything's going now, right there. These big malls are being turned into. You don't even need to go to shop; you just go to hang out and people watch. Well, the answer is yes. The answer, if you look at our portfolio of uh, a three million core square feet. Our percentage of revenue from QSR, fast casual, and restaurants have to be the highest in the industry. What is sorry? What does QSR stand for? Uh, quick serve restaurants. Okay. You know, from the subways to yeah, McDonald's, that kind of yes. thing. Yes, okay. they're not getting that on the internet yet, and so we really we're we're adding buildings all the time to increase our density and to keep our assets fresh. Having new construction, sometimes when we could build three pads, we build them one at a time. Just we keep it fresh. We're going to get the tenant that is uh, new to the market. And uh, we always want to have those. That's important. Uh, It's important to us to have those tenants and to be able, well, first of all, our leverage is not so high. Remarkably low compared to most borrowers. Yeah, Yeah, we're, you know, sub 20% on assets financed. Wow. And so uh, we know it's low, but it's indicative of a slower market if I... If I had a lot of things to build right away, you know, we could certainly take that to 50% and you could help us uh, probably in a week or so. About that, I think. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it, it, is, it is evolving. And yes, we're doing diversification more. We've always been in the apartment business. 
but the last apartment building I built was for my school teachers in 1985 in Portage La Prairie. 21 suites overlooking the lake with an elevator. At one time, I had 12 occupied by former school teachers of mine. Oh, wow. Um, was that by design or just absolute happenstance? Happenstance. Yeah, interesting. Uh, but That's I always funny. said, you know, this is a place that they need to retire. And now the building is 32 years old. And we just did a massive uh, renovation. You know, changed the balconies, you know, made them glass, took away the wood, redid the exterior, you know, for the long term. Right. Uh, you know, the rents didn't go up to compensate. But eventually they will. Sure. And uh, we want to make sure our assets are are crisp and fresh and we have what's new for suburban office. We're really interested in some suburban office. Our market, the politics today are we have people on council that want to open up Portage and Maine to pedestrians. And for anybody not familiar with Winnipeg, it's effectively a, a five-point intersection, multiple lanes in every direction really hectic. I remember one of the first times I was in Winnipeg, I was staying at a hotel right there and I was trying to cross it and I'm standing there perplexed and I couldn't figure out which way to go. And then finally I realized you have to go underground. They built right. a, kind of tunnels underneath to get around and I'm standing in Winnipeg in February trying to <laughs> figure out. <laughs> well, isn't, it, isn't it known as like the windiest intersection yeah, in the country? Yes, it is a, it is a windy intersection. Well, there's some talk uh, pol- politically that they may reopen Portage Maine. It's been closed since 1979. To pedestrians. Right. And so okay. we haven't had any pedestrian deaths since then, but our city has uh, grown by about 40%. Mm. So as a result, with the traffic congestion that is likely to happen, our team is waiting uh, on the first close infill suburbs with a net to capture the office tenants that want to get out of there. Because once you add a 15-minute round-trip commute time additional, you know, we'll, we'll think that we'll do some, some great suburban office in the southwest quadrant uh, with the mixed use. Most of the mixed use we'll be doing will be on site mixed use as opposed to having to put too many different uses in a building where they don't always work so well together. Yeah, what, elaborate on that. What do you mean, Sandy? Well, we can build apartment buildings next to office buildings next to retail. We don't have to put them all in the same building on right. the scale that we're working on in Winnipeg. And developers seem to love putting them all into one building. It's been uh, it, it's 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 really a challenge, you know, column spacing, ceiling height, loading, garbage, smell. Uh, it's a challenge. It can't be done. It's done, you know, within two blocks of where I'm sitting. There's probably a dozen projects underway. If uh, Portage and Maine was to be opened up to pedestrians. Would that improve the retail in that area? Because there's a lot of ground floor retail in the buildings around there. Probably not. Uh, the retail has uh, typically suffered at Portage and Maine by forcing everyone buy it. I think if you disperse people to have a choice of going underground or above ground, I think you'll probably dilute that. And uh, there's not any anchored retail uh, down there. Although uh, Artis is planning a, a major, I think, 40-story uh, apartment tower. And that'll be the first new, really, uh, rental high-rise in that area in, I think, 107 years. Wow. And they, they have a large uh, office tower there already. Right. Believe, it's in the right? same. Yeah. Yes, it's in yeah. the same. And for again, for anybody not familiar with Winnipeg, uh, Portage and Maine is, you know, at the epicenter of Winnipeg, so it's kind of strange that uh, because of the you know, the underground 
pedestrian walkways that is not built up with a ton of retail as you'd normally find at you know the most important intersection of a major city. There's there are not a lot of apartments down there though, right? No, so it's not. it's definitely a you know Monday to Friday type of type of energy. It right? is. And uh, people tend to shop where they live. Yeah, sure. So this uh, this development now there is a lot of residential development going on in in Winnipeg, though. There is just not downtown. Not downtown. There's some downtown, but you know the lease up has been a little slow. Mm-hmm. You know we don't need to do everything downtown when you can be uh, in a suburban location in twelve to fourteen minutes, and it's affordable. Yeah. Uh, there's not quite the same need. Sorry, we're from Toronto. We don't understand what, that, what that's <laughs> like. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've had tremendous growth in the Southwest. When I moved into my building 13 years ago. And that's where your head office is located, right? right? Yeah. It was a four-minute drive from my driveway to my garage at the office. And I noticed recently that it's been six or seven minutes. I feel so sorry for with, you. With <laughs> all the traffic. And uh, I know I don't get a lot of sympathy here. I have to, <laughs> I have to go to much smaller places to get some sympathy, yeah. which I'm prepared to do. <laughs> but, you know, we are experiencing growth by, by Winnipeg standards. Uh, you know, there's people coming and uh, new things are getting built. What, so. What's the main economic driver there? Ag, processing, and a lot of manufacturing. I think one of, uh, an interesting tour to take as a lender to get to know, you know, what the fabric is is to drive around some of our industrial parks, see buildings with no signs on them, or you know, so and so manufacturing, to find out that all the drive shafts for the General Dynamics Humvees are made there, hmm. to know that all the rubber parts for a Polaris uh, watercraft are are made there, and all of these different things that are manufactured there. Which, which uh, geographically, it's sort of strategically located. If you're if you're selling, you know, cross country, or you've got right. you've got your your, we have your the railroads, production chains. Yeah, uh, we have the highways. Both railways come through Winnipeg, so as a break bulk place, it's always worked uh, well. You know, we're one, one day truck to fifty million people. So wow. yeah, a great uh, trucking distribution place as well. And that's been true for a long time. That's been yes. the distribution from uh, Central Point. Yes. A fairly stable political environment. We have a new provincial government that has been making some spending cuts, certainly to what we had for before. We had, as I said, a swing in in council a few years ago. It's a little less uh, administratively business-friendly than it's been in the past. Okay. But there's room for improvement. As always. You know? Yeah. What about major developments in uh, Winnipeg right now? Well, there's the True North Square, which is uh, office. Um, Gallardi's doing a Sutton Place Hotel with some condos, and that's adjacent to our arena downtown. And they've shifted and taken some tenants out of uh, some of the Portage and Main Towers. Mm-hmm. There's not much net new, unfortunately, uh, but it is new. And uh, it's our, the newest thing that's happening downtown along with that. Uh, major residential uh, tower. Life insurance companies have some of their headquarters in Winnipeg, do they not? Great West Life is there. Investors Group is there. Uh, Wawanisa. And these are their there. national headquarters. Yes. Yeah. And um, great employers. Nice to have them there, certainly. Sure, sure. Has the arena helped the real estate 
you're seeing it in Edmonton. Certainly, I mean, it, it, it hasn't hasn't worked itself out totally, but certainly there 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 seems to be that the Edmonton development has really reinvigorated that downtown. Well, the True North is from the same developers as the stadium, and it is adjacent. Okay. Other than that, not a retail lift, some food service, but once again, we don't have the density downtown to bring it all together. And uh, Edmonton is working very hard, of course, with WAM and the Ice District and Daryl Cates. Mm -hmm. They're they're making a bigger statement, certainly. It's a bigger market. It hasn't been negative, certainly. You know, we still got an an aging bay downtown that's about half used, I think, in terms of the square footage. And so, uh, you know, there's things to do there still. And you got the Jets. Yes, and they didn't play so well last night. But uh, the Jets have really invigorated our community and have people feeling very good about themselves. I can tell you they help things like uh, the fast casual and the casual dining restaurants with lounges because, you, you know, when you're sold out and you can't get season tickets, your games are at the local Boston Pizza. And the one thing, if you're watching it on television, you got 80 home games, not 40. Sure. So uh, no, that sort of consumer sentiment is up, which is always always reflects well on the retail space. I think that people are feeling much better about themselves, and very proud of that. Now, in general, how excited are you about Winnipeg right now in terms of uh, well, in a real estate context uh, now versus five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago? Well, uh, we weren't worried about. Uh, Zellers. Uh, we didn't know about Target ruining our lives a little bit. And uh, Sears, you know, was on a negative uh, plane, but we didn't know that it w- when it would end. We're a city that uh, we don't have a lot of sprawl. And so there's great opportunities to do infill. There's great opportunities to add to a lot of places. And everything that gets built seems to be sold. The condominium business, although we don't have a high-end condo market, but it's more of an entry-level market, but there's lots of participants, lots of people building them from small buildings to large, and it's working. And province-wide, we're very excited about Portia Prairie. That's my hometown. And I think it was 12,000 people after the Second World War. Now we're up to 13. As my father used to say, uh, every time a baby's born, a guy left town. So our population stayed the same. Now we have a half a billion dollar direct investment from a French P, PEA protein company hmm. from France. And they're the largest in the world. I think they have seven or eight plants. They're already assembled land for an expansion to that plant. So the farmers are going to be growing peas. They're already out contracting in advance and they just started construction. Uh, That's going to change the face. I was out last night with some colleagues that Adam uh, knows well. You know, he's adding 64 units of density to his residential project. Uh, We're adding another residential building. Some builders have come in from Vancouver Island. They're going to add some as well. And so that, it's nice to see that happen. Uh, We saw that happen in Brandon with uh, ag products and Simplot is there. Lots of great things happening. You know, we have rich farmland and we have what we would call top quartile farmers in terms of the yields and the things that they're employing to drive great crops. Hmm. Today, somebody I went to school with, well, the, the premier's brother, I think he farms 15,000 acres with about a couple of kids, his wife, and a couple of hired hands. 
It's know, amazing. They eat up a, a section of land. Well, the machinery that those guys are using these days are just these behemoths, right? They seem like they can just stretch their arms out and, you know, cover an acre in 10 minutes, right? Well, we were talking to our cabinet maker the other day, and he said that this is more, well, actually, about six weeks ago now, in August, they took 150 bushels an acre of oats off. So plant three, take off 150. Hmm. Uh, you know, we had just a perfect year this year. But the equipment that's out there to, to handle things, a farmer sows a couple of thousand acres, and there's no overseeding on the corners. They don't waste a pail of herbicide or it's, everything is so precise. I, I went and looked in a tractor at the Portage Fair where I took my daughter to have a look at the animals, and I wouldn't have known what to do. I wouldn't have been able to move it. Yeah, because it was just so. so I, I wouldn't know where. Yeah. To, I, I I could see where the seat was. That, <laughs> you knew I, where to so, sit. So I, I knew it. that you would sit this way. You know, uh, <laughs> face west. Well, and how does that impact the real estate? I mean, are you seeing there's more migration to to urban cities? I mean, clearly the the, the amount of uh, employment required for the farming is not nearly as high, and, and and surely continuing to decrease. Right. So, how does that impacting your business and your well your approach? only only the pr- only the processing, you know, which does bring people off the farm because they don't need to be on the farm. Yes, there is certainly a migration to Winnipeg. Brandon is about two hours away, and it's always been a strong city, but we don't have the competition for people like you see. You know, we don't have Edmonton and Calgary, Regina and Saskatoon. We just have one large city. Right. And uh, we do have a lot of growth, though, in the other cities, uh, Steinbach's and Winkler's, uh, Selkirk, you know, where we're seeing good retail sales, for example, in those. uh, Here you'd call that ex-suburban. You know, it's a 30-minute drive from Portage and Maine. For us, yeah, but it's a why, live, why live there when you can live ten minutes away from Portage and Maine? Right, you know, for the right. Same, for the same so, price. So, yeah. so that's uh, that's what's happening there. But we certainly still have a lot of potential. You could never make a living selling foreclosures as a broker because there never was any hmm. in forty-two years. Wow! So it just doesn't happen. Kind of slow and steady. Yes, and some of that is good for one's blood pressure. <laughs> well, I've been to the Winnipeg Real Estate Forum uh, a couple of years. And they always got every every year has been the message, you know, it's slow and steady, doesn't have the highs and lows that you find in a market like like Alberta. But then the most recent forum, which I think was a year ago, yes. they were saying, well, that image is kind of being shed now. We are seeing a little you know, more of a substantial uptick in terms of growth in the growth in the market. So maybe getting rid of that. Not that not that you want to get rid of the, the idea of stability, but at least that the growth upside right. there. We still have a lot of natural resources. You know, we have gold and we have nickel and we have Conventional oil, you know, the Wascada Basin comes right into our southwest uh, corner of the province. we got natural gas. And, uh, well, right now the commodity of potash is not, you know, propping up Saskatchewan as we'd like to see it. Mm. Uh, the, you know, the main mine shaft in Rokenville is, uh, I think, feet from the Manitoba border. And so I once asked uh, our development manager, I said, how is potash so smart that it just goes straight down and west? You know, shouldn't it kind of, isn't it like water? Some of it might go east. And the answer is we're full of potash. Hmm. And so, um, you know, it's just a matter of time. We have the natural resources. We have hydroelectric. We have the dams. We have clean energy. And if that gets to be as important as we're all hoping it is, and if the customers can materialize and maybe we can get a grid into Ontario, 
that would be uh, great to have a Western grid, a Southern grid, and taking into parts of Ontario as well with the massive investments that have been made in hydro already. So along the theme, you know, where do you, where do you see Winnipeg in the next five to 10, 15 years, the other direction? How are you going to chase yield over the next uh, decade? Where do you see your opportunities? Well, one of the things we're doing by intensity of sites and uh, addition of uses won't see our yields go up. As a matter of fact, they'll see our average yields go down. However, it's going to be able to make a big investment. So we'll be able to triple our investment without buying any more land other than the mm-hmm. land we already have entitled for our company. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's uh, steady as she goes with every announcement being a good one, it seems. You know, we've already lost everything that we could lose in terms of uh, jobs. And the jobs that are replacing them are more interesting. It's keeping more millennials at home, which is nice. They don't all move to Toronto, but we still export some. Mm-hmm. So we've been able to keep a nice uh, balance. And new and reinvestment, low interest rates, more lenders such as yourself coming and getting people uh, the idea that they can expand their portfolios and that the funding is there. And we're going to pretty stable provincial government, you know, big majority. Uh, they're on a, a massive cost-cutting thing, which isn't great for some of us that lost a tenant or two. But overall, I think it'll stop our, our tax growth. And do you see yourself moving away from retail, not in terms of disposition of your current pro- properties, but less development on the retail front? Yes, I think this is mandated by the boxes that we're going to have to compete with. Uh, all of them were in the neighborhood. And uh, the volatility, when we look at our asset-managed NEI, you know, CS codes, you know, we're not going to lean too heavy on places that that we don't have a solid business reason and and that the tenants' clients are likely to be there for something beyond a 10-year lease term. So, yes, by that very nature, it'll slow down, but it won't slow down our development. Distribution, uh, we've got old distribution buildings. There's a great opportunity for more DCs because of our trucking. Office is always tight. It's often political. We're hoping that the city uh, fathers and mothers uh, make that mistake and open Portage and Maine so that, you know, we've got a great suburban site to capture all the people (laughs) on their way home. Yeah. Apartments and industrial. That kind of seems to be where everybody seems to be leaning these days that Office's got some challenges. Retail has some challenges. So if you if you you're looking for yield and you've got you know the equity to deploy, that seems to be the asset class that most people are leaning these days. Yeah, we've we you know we have Office, but it's always been you know the big consolidators game. We benefited in Winnipeg by the consolidators coming, the first smart REITs and others, and coming in and lifting rents and creating equity for all of us uh, that were already out there. So we we see that. Although the intensity of retail, we, have, we still have three big retail projects that we're inches away from signing uh, anchors that will survive Amazon and we'll build them out. So it's not that there'll be no new retail, there will be. However, we're putting hotels on the properties to add daytime population, apartments wherever we can. Mm-hmm. And we're going to continue enhancing our the retail we have by bringing more customers to the site. Yeah. 
So Sandy uh, talks a lot about Winnipeg. What about other locations or districts in, in, in Canada? Where are you seeing there's opportunity for yield and, and what are you doing there? Well, we have a, a retail concept that we've developed called Storageville, which is a, I would call it a, a very nicely managed uh, personal storage business. And we want to take that to other places because we do have the framework and the platform to do so. So that's just a general storage facility or what, what makes it it's, unique? What makes it unique is that it's always in retail locations. <laughs> okay. Okay. Interesting. You know, we're not on the edge with it. Cool. Uh, and where are you looking to deploy that? Well, uh, Calgary for one. However, it's very hard to find the zoning that will allow us to put it in the places we want. We also would consider uh, Vancouver. It's a little too competitive, I would say, in both certainly Ottawa and the GTA. So we're not looking there. But we are looking for some potential acquisitions in the U.S. in that space. Uh, we would also do it in Europe, given the right opportunity. So what is the strategy? The uh, Maybe connect the dots between the retail location and, and the, the attributes of having a storage facility uh, in that neighborhood. Well, we design to SEPTED uh, standards, which is uh, construction, design, and engineering for personal safety. Okay. So we have storage places where you wouldn't mind your mother or grandmother going at eight, 9 o'clock at night to uh, drop off a lamp. And so very big on the, on the security and the comfort and the cleanliness of the operation. Well, well lit and yes. high visibility. And- yes. And so that's what we're doing with our retail sites. I mean, uh, we're lifting the foot candles of light to double. You know, we did the LED program. We, you know, we really went in to make them more inviting. We went and battled the city to get another approach or a wider approach or another right in and another right out, you know, just to make it easy. We've, we've gone where we do have uh, ample parking. We've uh, shrunk the number of stalls without shrinking the footprint. You know, we're, going, we're putting nine and 10 foot parking stalls in. Hmm. So, you know, Luxurious. Well, right? come in, uh, you, you can put your groceries in and out of your car without making a mess of it. Uh, you can put your child in the baby seat or take them out. And so, yeah, we're making it easy. When we do retail, our parking lots have less than a 1.5% grade. Now, that costs money. Mm-hmm. You have to put more catch basins in. We can't drain uh, four acres into one catch basin. Your shopping cart runs away. Your footing gets a little soft in, in the winter months. Sure. So we're really going beyond what the tenants may be asking for. We need to make sure that all the customers come to them. So we need to make sure that they succeed with their customers. In terms of geographies, in Canada, where else would you see that self-storage model working? You mentioned Vancouver, but my first thought, of course, is the pricing there would be difficult. It's got to be really difficult, actually. Yeah, it has to be high density, certainly, and more high density than we're used to doing it. It would work in Calgary. Especially now that there's probably a little more product available. Right. Uh, It's a zoning issue, though. Of course, yeah. You know, we can buy land, whether we pay too much for it or not, but we haven't been able to find it in the places we want it. So we think that there's more U.S. opportunities because there's more acceptance there. Okay. Where, where in the U.S. do you think, uh, like the flight mentioned Arizona, is there anywhere else? Uh, actually, everywhere. Florida, uh, there's a lot of uh, opportunity. And in places where people aren't running to, you know, in the Midwest. They're, the storage storage space is a really interesting asset class. You know, I'll make up the numbers, but they'll be generally accurate. 
uh, in the U.S., the storage per square foot space per person is about double what it is in Canada. And so yeah, we, we've talked to a number of American storage manufacturers, storage facility owners and, and developers that see this as a huge opportunity in Canada to come up here and build more space because we just we don't have nearly enough of it yet. Yeah, I think uh, looking at macro data can get some people in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have as much crap to store. Well, the other one would be military, right? We don't have nearly as many military personnel that have all of that gear or... Or, or colleges. You yeah, go to colleges, a small town yeah, you exactly. haven't heard of and there's five colleges there. So there's more transient population and interstate migration than we have. We got basements in a lot of this country mm-hmm. if you're in single family. Uh, we have garages and we don't have the same consumer demand. So... We don't have last year's big screen TV to store somewhere. Whatever one you, you'll keep it for three or four years and you'll throw it out. Uh, you know, I, I, we look at storage facilities in the United States and you see consumers that got five large screen TVs, you know, for the last five years. They're not worth anything, so they store them. Uh, we don't store in the same way uh, for the same reason that there, our retail square footage per capita is different. Mm-hmm. And less, and our storage is less, and our demand is less too. So I think that one of the things you have to do is look at the demand side of it, and not just the supply side of it. And that's what we're careful to do. And actually, as a teaser for a future episode, we are having an American self storage company on to talk about the that exact. Stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm I'm going to be happy to learn something from them. Yeah. <laughs> We won't play them this episode, though. Come to Canada. It's wonderful up here. Well, no. <laughs> Plenty of demand. There's lots yeah. of opportunities in the big urban centers. The unfortunate thing is places that you can buy land is not where the opportunities are. It's got to be difficult. It's got to be high density. And Toronto, you know, as long as you keep building smaller and smaller places to live in. That's and, all we can afford now. And, and businesses in uh, the GTA are more prone to, to store their files there to store things there. Well, that's as well. a curious question. Like I, I was surprised. I have a storage locker in, in Toronto because I live in a small place, and and I was interested to find that a lot of the units are corporately owned, and it's, it's contractors and guys. I'm seeing if I go at six o'clock in the evening, it's guys at the end of the day pulling their truck in, dropping a bunch of stuff out of the truck, putting it in the storage locker, and I'm sure a different guy in a different truck shows up the next morning and picks it up. And that's just that's rather than owning or renting or leasing an industrial space, they're just using a storage locker facility. That's the business you're looking for. That's the sticky business. You know, as your project gets mature and you have, uh, you know, drug reps or small contractors, you know, they're not waiting for the new home to be built. You know, they're not waiting for that type of thing. And so that's really the business that is the most sustainable. For, the, for tenants, you mean, for storage locker yes. tenants, yeah. I mean, I've, I've used storage lockers in the past, but it was always just, I was in between apartments and, uh, you know, now I've got a full basement, so all my crap goes yeah. down there. <laughs> well, Adam, I guess you've always believed that it's cheaper to move than to pay rent. <laughs> I've definitely moved too many times, but I don't know if I came out a net winner financially from, uh, any, <laughs> from any that. <laughs> definitely not, Adam, yeah. definitely not. We'd like to end off each uh, guest segment by asking for two pieces of advice you would give to yourself if you could travel back to Portage La Prairie to a, a younger Sandy starting out his career in real estate, what two pieces of advice you would give to him? Have more courage when you have less to lose 
collaborate more in partnerships to grow your footprint and learn and travel and use something called central place theory that every place is a central place. See what they're doing in Toronto. What relationship does it have to Hamilton and what relationship does it have to where you live? So travel and see what's new because that's an education. Walk around, ask questions, get education. I'm big on CCIM, but there, you know, there's others uh, as well. And have more courage. And when you have the time and you don't have, you know, as many family obligations, you don't need to work a 40-hour week. Because your only competitive advantage is one's ability to learn more, comma, more quickly. And so you can get an awful lot of experience in a shorter period of time. And that will hold you in the best stead. if I would say that to my younger self. It's great advice. And Sandy... He, he walks the walk. He's a, not only a CCIM member, but a CCIM instructor. So he travels around and teaches four and five day courses. Yes. I was in Moscow during the coup, during the pooch. Really? <laughs> yeah, we didn't have a television. We didn't know what the people were yelling about. but uh, <laughs> Or understand them if you did. No, yeah. no. <laughs> no. We were there. We were there. 1991. Oh, that's interesting. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Where, so let's just do that. Where, where would If I'm listening and I want to learn more about CCIM, where would I go? CCIM.com, I believe, is the uh, website. Uh, you know, they're doing all different kinds of delivery on the courses. They're not all classroom courses. There's blended learning, et cetera. But for four-day courses, plus we now have the Ward Center named after uh, Bob Ward, who is a longtime instructor and leader in our institute. And there's some one- and two-day courses. You can get a lot out of it, you know, two days, you know, mingling with other people who are in the same business. And the teachers will always answer your questions. I mean, you know, we have email, we have the telephone, and we'll always answer your questions. And if traveling seems like too much, I actually did my entire course load all online because I had a brand new child and it was going to be difficult. So I just, you know, got in an hour here, hour there when I could knock it off. And it took about uh, two years, but there's a lot of ways of tackling it. Yeah. And it's. You know, it's one of the, I mean, now there's real estate schools everywhere, mm-hmm. and uh, certainly, but this is uh, for those that have already done their schooling, and uh, one of the great benefits of the CCM education is for your personal investments. Great for mortgage underwriting, because you're underwriting it like it is your personal investment, but uh, I, I, I'm quite in favor of the, of the education. Thanks, Andy. Uh, up next... We've got a news article to discuss. And so given that we've got Sandy here, who's got a a deep history with retail, and given that a lot of the items we discussed regarding retail recently have not been of the most positive note, I do have a very nice positive retail article to share. No way. Yeah, this is it's all good news. <laughs> Did I write it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I thought I found it on my desk this morning. I don't, yeah. know, I don't know who put it there. So this is from the Real Estate News Exchange. It's retail investment in Vancouver surpassed $2.8 billion in the first half of 2017, which is a big number. And then for relevance sakes, it's eclipsing the previous record of $1.6 billion in all of 2016. So they've really shattered the 2016 record. Uh, The market is being driven by major international brands setting up shop in the West Coast city and sparking a renaissance in the retail sector. And they actually list some of them here. They're all foreign. 
I'm, I'm supposed to know them, but I don't. So I'll ask Sandy because he's probably more plugged into the retail tenant world. But these were all the five new major brands opening up on Robson Street, which is the, the fanciest of fancy streets in uh, Vancouver. But the five businesses are, please tell me if you know them, Muji from Japan, Bailey Nelson from Australia, Ladere from France. Say that again. <laughs> Ladere. Okay, great. So you do know it. Oh, Nike from the U.S. Okay, I do, I do know that one. <laughs> and a Vancouver-based athletic wear designer, reigning champ. So do you recognize those names, Sandy? I certainly uh, recommend, uh, recognize rather the Japanese retailer. Uh, people were waiting for it. It's uh, got a good price point and uh, some interesting design that is new to the market that everyone is knocking off yet. Uh, actually, they're probably knocking it off someplace now that I think about it. Latterie, of course, you know, the giftware, et cetera, mm-hmm. for a specific market. A lot of the market that you mentioned, and I don't know the Australian company, I'm going to guess that a big segment of those shopping are big shops that are coming from offshore. They're on Robson Street. They're coming from uh, Pacific Rim. And they're. Uh, I'm told that some of the well-known Canadian large um, luxury uh, chains have million dollar shoppers. So that's somebody that comes in and buys every color of Hermes bag in two styles. Wow. You know, at once. And so they have a market, which isn't certainly confined to the lower mainland, but the visitors to that market are, you know, have major wealth, uh, are great consumers and like to be able to buy it in a safe environment. And that's what we offer. Fresh air when you're going from store to store. Yeah. For those that don't know Robson, it's a, it's a great street to just walk up and down and, and yes. people watch. It's always busy, whether it's 8 a.m. or midnight, you know, seven days a week. It's There's people around hanging out. Yeah, very comfortable. Street. Yeah. Do you have a desire to pursue that kind of uh, retail, the, the high-end uh, portion of the market? We don't have uh, a tourist market in Winnipeg. Tourists shop. You know, they shop outlets and they shop the high-end. Sometimes people want to buy a $25,000 watch, but they don't necessarily want their neighbor to see them coming in and out of the store. And so they tend to make that a, a purchase that's outside the trade area. Uh, but we don't have enough people coming in buying those things in Winnipeg. So those brands wouldn't get the same take up they would in Toronto or, you know, more fashion forward places. But we're coming up, you know, uh, we are selling more. We're selling more $8,000 watches than we ever have. <laughs> It's a booming market. How many of those do you own? <laughs> Looks at his watch. Yeah, <laughs> it's a Timex. Yeah, keeps on ticking. Uh, I want to thank uh, our sponsor, First National. I want to thank uh, our listeners for listening. I want to thank our guest, Sandy. Thanks for coming in today and doing this. You know, it's great to catch you while you're in town. We've been going back and forth for a while, trying to you know catch him uh, when he's in and out of Toronto, and it worked this time. So thanks for thanks for making it happen. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, uh, you know, particularly if that friend is in Winnipeg because there was a lot of discussion. But uh, for anybody outside of Winnipeg, get to know the market a little bit. Uh, Thanks a lot, Sandy. Thank you very much. This was fun. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.